Thank you so much, team. Thank you for leading us in worship. You may be seated. Our God is holy. He does all things out of his holiness. And it is out of his holiness also that he has provided perfect salvation. And the wonderful truth is that our God has given a way of redemption whereby he can be perfectly, totally, completely, eternally holy. And yet at the same time, give everlasting life and full redemption to the vilest of sinners. What an awesome God, perfect in holiness and complete in grace. And I want us to look at this passage that Tina read for us this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And as we are making our way through this wonderful epistle, we come to this amazing, amazing paragraph, which really is the turning point, the transition point for all that God is saying through the Apostle Paul in this letter. So turn there if you would, Romans chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31. There was a great Bible teacher of a couple of generations ago. His name was Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Barnhouse. He was a renowned Bible teacher. He was one of the first Bible teachers to understand the power of media, that time the radio, and then eventually television. Dr. Barnhouse, for over 33 years, was pastor of great church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 10th Presbyterian. He pastored that church from 1927 until his death in 1960. He was, in reality, a, a genius with simplicity. His uh, books are still in great demand today, and so I encourage you, if you ever have an opportunity to purchase a volume by Dr. Barnhouse, to do that. Billy Graham said of Dr. Barnhouse, he said, Dr. Barnhouse knows the Bible better than any living person. That's quite a tribute <laughs> when Billy Graham says that this man knew the Bible better than any living person. In 1949, on his radio broadcast, Dr. Barnhouse started a series of messages through the book of Romans. He started in 1949 and he brought that to conclusion just about the time of his death, 11 years later. <laughs> 11 years as he taught through this amazing book in the book of Romans and his comments on that, a, a set of commentaries. Again, uh, if it's in print today, a great encouragement to read those. But in Dr. Barnhouse's Bible, with his own pen, he inscribed a heart. He inscribed a heart over Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. Put a heart over it. And he, he said this about this passage. 
I am convinced today, he said, after many years of Bible study, that these are the most important verses in the Bible. These are the most important verses in the Bible. Interesting, many years later, there was another renowned Bible teacher and commentator, Dr. Leon Morris, who said of this passage that we've just read, he said, quote, this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written in human history. So ask me if I feel a little overwhelmed this morning. <laughs> Not quite up to the task. But I do want to say, in my humble, but as you know, very accurate opinion, <laughs> that I completely agree with Dr. Barnhouse and his comments and Dr. Morris, his comments. This truly is one of the most important passages in God's Word, if not the most important passage, and very well may be the greatest paragraph that's ever been written in human history. Now why would such eminent theologians, pastors, teachers as these two men make such a statement about this passage? It is because, friends, listen carefully, in these verses... There is stated the great question. In these verses, there is stated the great question of the ages. And there is also given the great answer to that great question. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage under that heading. The great question, the great answer. The great question, the great answer. So, of course, that begs the question. <laughs> what is the question? Here is the question. How can a holy God declare guilty sinners not guilty? How can a holy God who is absolutely perfect, completely just, and who must do right, he must punish sin, how can a holy God not only pardon and forgive, but declare not guilty people who are guilty sinners? That is the question. And that question you'll see is, is inferred in verse 26. Notice that's the question. Paul talking about the gospel and what Christ has done says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. God might be just. And yet, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
in the gospel is the answer to the great conundrum. How can a just and holy God declare unjust and unholy people to be not guilty? And my friend, the answer to that, we will see, is in the cross. And the one on the cross. Now, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been making a point, And it is like he has taken the hammer of God's truth and he has nailed this and nailed this and nailed this to get one point across. His one point between chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 20, is that all human beings are guilty before God. That there is none righteous. And he makes it very clear in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the hedonist is unrighteous. That is the person who doesn't believe in God's law and wants nothing to do with God's law and wants to live in complete freedom. Paul says that person is guilty. But then he speaks in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, to the moralist, the one who looks at that hedonist and says, tisk, 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 and glories in his or her own morality. And Paul makes it very clear by the Holy Spirit that the moralist who is judging the hedonist is also guilty before a holy God. And then in chapter 2 verse 17 all the way through chapter 3 verse 8 he talks to the religionist. The person who says because of my religion because of the rituals that I have performed and because of my heritage, I am not guilty. And Paul says, no, you who are religious people are guilty. The hedonists are guilty. The moralists are guilty. The religionists are guilty. And it's if you've read this, it's like Paul says it three times, three different ways. Verse 10 of chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. Verse 19, all are guilty before God. And then verse 20, not only are we all guilty, but there's nothing we can do to fix our situation. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. The word justified here is a legal term. It means to be declared not guilty. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. <laughs> you see, the issue here is that the law, God's law, is powerless to save us. Why is God's law powerless to save us? Because we can't keep it. The law, as I've said before, it's like God's mirror of truth. 
The mirror can show you your face is dirty, but the mirror cannot do anything with the dirt. And that is how every human being stands before God's law. We have all broken the law. Therefore, we are guilty before the law. And we deserve the punishment that comes to lawbreakers. Some of us have broken the law in church. Some of us broken the law never darkening the doors of a church. Some people have broken the law not even believing there is a lawgiver God. But there is. <laughs> And we're all guilty before this God. This is the human condition. And as one commentator entitled chapter 1 verse 18. All the way down to chapter 3 verse 20. Here was his title to this passage. What a mess. <laughs> what a mess. But thank God. And we can only thank God it's not a hopeless mess. Why? Because after verse, after verse, after verse, after verse, after verse of proving that we are guilty sinners before a holy God and there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves, nailing that truth, then we have this blessed expression in verse 20. Verse 21, uh, rather. But now, <laughs> but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Finally, there's hope. Why? Because God himself has come to the rescue. God has intervened. Into this mess, God himself has intervened to bring a righteousness. This is the hope. It all changes in that great intervention. But now, there is a righteousness from God. So, the answer to the question. And this is what Paul's going to open up. He's saying, now here's the answer. The answer to the question, how can a holy God declare guilty sinners to be not guilty? It's all opened up in this term, righteousness. There is a righteousness, a rightness with God that God himself has provided. It's not a righteousness that is worked up because we cannot do it. But it is a righteousness that has been sent down and provided. And there are four words that describe this righteousness that God has provided. And my friend, listen carefully to me. They all stand or fall together. Where you will spend eternity. Where you will be one million years from today. All hinges on whether you accept unequivocally these four words. And apply this great rescue that God has provided. This righteousness. What are these four words? 
Let me give them to you. First of all, this righteousness of, that we're talking about, it is unmerited righteousness. It's unmerited righteousness. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, law and the prophets means the Old Testament, bears witness to it. This is a righteousness that was foretold in the Old Testament. The promise going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God promised Adam and Eve that there would come one who would overcome and be victorious and would defeat Satan. And all through the Old Testament, there's this promise of this righteous one who's coming, this deliverer who's coming. But the point that Paul is making here is this righteousness, this rightness with God is unmerited. <laughs> we, we might say it is a radical righteousness. Because it's not something that we produce. It's not even from us. It's from God himself. <laughs> it's radical. Not because it's new. God had prophesied it was coming. But it is radical because it is a righteousness that comes from God himself. It's translated here, notice, verse. it can be translated two ways. Verse 21, now the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God has been manifested. Both are true. It is a righteousness from God, meaning God's the source of the righteousness. This is not man's righteousness, this is God's righteousness. He's the source of it. And it's a righteousness not only from God, it's a righteousness of God because that's the substance of the righteousness. It's not human righteousness, it's a righteousness that's God's righteousness. It's the substance that He provides. A righteousness of God and a righteousness from God. And my friends, listen carefully. It's real. It's not make-believe. God's not playing games. He's not, he's not doing a, a word puzzle here. I, I love what Dr. John MacArthur has said on this passage. He says, quote, God is not an illusionist. God does not consider a believer to be righteous. He makes him righteous. <laughs> this is not God playing words. This is God actually accomplishing what we need, a righteousness with Him. So the first word to describe righteousness is that God has provided an unmerited righteousness. It has nothing to do with our keeping of the law. We could not keep the law. It's not a merit system. It's not a point system. It's not you stand before God and your evil deeds are in one 
part of the scale and your good deeds are in the other part of the scale. And if you have more good than bad, no, 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 no. You don't want that, right? I don't want that. This is not a merit system. It is unmerited. And that leads to the second word I want you to notice about this righteousness that God provides, according to Paul. It's not just unmerited righteousness, but it's undeserved righteousness. Undeserved righteousness. Many years ago, 100 years almost now, there was a great evangelist in the United States who was sort of the Billy Graham of his generation. His name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a, a converted major league baseball player. <laughs> and one time he held two records. He held two records, one for the most stolen bases and the other for the most strikeouts. <laughs> okay. But he was converted through gospel witness And he became a mighty preacher, held crusades of gospel ministry all around the United States. And he did tend to be a little flamboyant. But he loved people and he wanted to see them come to the Lord. And one time he was about to come to a large city in the United States to hold an evangelistic meeting for a number of weeks. And he wrote a letter to the mayor of that city and said, I would like to pray especially for sinners that greatly need the Lord. You're aware of them. And I'd love to pray for them. Could you send me their names? <laughs> you know what the mayor did? He sent a copy of the phone book <laughs> to Billy Sunday. <laughs> Some of you younger, what's a phone book? Google, Google it. Google it. That mayor understood it, didn't he? He understood this truth. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. And fall, fall short of the glory of God. You know, for a long time I used to read verse 23. And there was a part of me wanted to say, come on, Paul. Haven't you just beat us to death? You start with a little hope about righteousness. And now it's like you're pouring salt back in the wound. But then I saw it. And I want you to see it. That actually what Paul is doing here, he is giving hope to everyone because everyone is without hope in himself or herself. We're all in the same boat. We're all hemmed in. Needing a righteousness that's not found here on this earth and no one can give it. But there is a righteousness from God. And it is because it's a righteousness from the Creator. It's a righteousness for all who have sinned against Him. 
We've all sinned and come short of God's standard. Therefore, we're all candidates for grace. We're all candidates for grace. Because we don't measure up. We need a righteousness that's not our own. We need a righteousness that we don't deserve. You see, friends, it's not just that we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Do not ever, ever ask God to give you what you deserve. Do not ever ask God to be fair with you. You don't want fair. You don't want what you deserve. Not if you understand God's holiness and you understand the depravity of your own heart. You don't want God to play fair with you. But this righteousness that God has provided, notice, I love this, it's a free gift. You see, if we're all sinners and we've all come short of God's standard, then for all there is offered a free gift. Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Literally, the idea is a free gift. We are justified. We are declared not guilty. Remember what that word means. We are declared not guilty by His grace. His unmerited kindness. This is given to us as a free gift through the redemption. What is that word redemption? The word redemption here is a marketplace word. It means to buy something in the marketplace. And this word in particular meant to purchase a slave and set him or her free. Isn't that a great word? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace is totally unhindered by any person's sin. Now think about that. God did not come in Christ to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And God's righteousness and His grace and His mercy is so great that no sin is greater than His grace. My friend, do you hear that? That's good news today. Your sin is not so many and so much that it hinders the avalanche of God's grace to deal with it. God's grace is more than unmerited favor. It is unmerited favor to the undeserving. If you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't deserve this. Thank God you know that. You're not far from the kingdom of God. It's the person who says, I'm okay. I think you're okay. Who doesn't get it? Because the truth is, I'm not okay. I'm a sinner. And the truth is, you're not so hot yourself. (laughs) That's the truth. An unmerited favor so great 
that those people who trust in Christ are not just forgiven. They're not just pardoned, but their debt is completely canceled out. So that God can declare that person not guilty. Now that's the very order of what God is saying here. This is the reason this may be the greatest paragraph ever written. You've got, you've got to follow Paul's thought here. Are you following it? Verse 23, we are all guilty sinners. But as guilty sinners, we can be declared not guilty. We can be justified. We can be justified on the basis of a free gift. And we can be justified on the basis of a free gift based on the payment that Jesus made for sinners. The debt has been paid. That's what redemption means. What does it mean? It means to pay the price and set free. To pay the price and set free. What a wonderful salvation. Amen. These terms are amazing. <laughs> These terms are of justification and grace redemption they're, they're amazing terms I, I started to call this message terms of endearment <laughs> but I didn't want to use a movie title especially one that Shirley MacLaine starred in okay that's, that's another thing Just let that go let, let that go these are some wonderful terms but the greatest of them all, listen, we're not even to the top yet. The greatest term of all is found in verse 25. And if you don't know this term, you're going to learn this term this morning. And you'll leave rejoicing if you understand what this word means. It is the great word of salvation. Notice it's in verse 25. It's the promise of unlimited righteousness. Unlimited righteousness because of propitiation. Propitiation. You know, I've heard many people say, you got to be careful to not use these words because people these, this day, we, they just don't understand these words. And number one, I think that's quite an arrogant attitude. I think it's quite a condescending attitude. But more than that, there's unbelief in that attitude. God used words to communicate a message. He used this word propitiation because He wants us to understand what this word means because it is the great word of the gospel. This is the answer to the question. Verse 25, Jesus has been put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This, this plan is to show, this plan is to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over 
former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is the answer. What was the question? How can a holy God declare not guilty, guilty sinners? How's that possible? It's possible because of propitiation. What's this word propitiation mean? What does it mean? It means the idea here is a sacrifice that makes atonement, payment, or a sacrifice that satisfies the penalty. A sacrifice that makes a full atonement. It is a satisfaction of the wrath and justice that is due. Now friend, this answer in verse 25 has been the eureka moment for the salvation of thousands. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the years. And I pray this morning for someone watching, someone here, the light will go on for you. For example, in 1656, there was a young man under a great burden for his sin. So much so that in his little house in, in England... He was walking back and forth, back and forth, and this burden upon him. He was praying and praying, and suddenly, this verse of Scripture came to his mind. Verse 25, that God has put forth Jesus as a propitiation. And that man said, I was like someone wakened out of a terrible dream. That young man's name was John Bunyan. He went on to become a pastor who was put in prison because he would not accept a state license to preach the gospel. And he was in the Bedford jail for 12 years preaching through the bars to the people who would come to hear him. But he had time to write. And he wrote a little book Second most published book in the English language next to the Bible. The Pilgrim's Progress. The man who wrote that. Was born again because he understood verse 25. It's interesting. 100 years later. In 1756. There was a 25-year-old young man in such despair of his soul that twice he attempted suicide. He was finally committed to a private institution called an asylum in that day. And just so happened that this one mercifully was overseen by a godly man who cared for this young 25-year-old man. 
And in his cell, in that place, he cried out, My sin, my sin. Oh, if there was a fountain of cleansing for my sin. And having said that, he plopped himself down in a chair and he began to sob. And something within him told him to pick up that Bible. He picked up that Bible he opened it to Romans chapter 3. He read verse 25. Whom God has put forward. Jesus has been put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And that young man years later said, Immediately the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atoning work he had made for me. That young man's name was William Cooper. And he went on to write a number of beautiful songs. And one of them is this. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. This verse. One word, the heart of the gospel, propitiation, a sacrifice that has made a satisfaction, a sacrifice that has made an atonement. Now, if you really listen carefully, if you really want to understand this word, don't forget this picture that I'm about to share with you. Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word, 22 times, translates what in our English Bibles is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Now what is the mercy seat? You remember, God brought His people out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea, brought judgment on the Egyptians. Then he gave detailed instructions to Moses on how to build the dwelling place where he would dwell with his people in a tent. How he could be approached by sinful people. There was one entrance into this tent. And just inside that entrance was the altar of burnt offering where the sacrifices could be offered to God. And then beyond that, there was a pool where the priests could wash themselves, who would go into the inner tent and minister there. There was one door that led into the inner tent, and inside the inner tent was a table that had the daily bread, the manna placed upon it. And there was a lampstand with the shining presence to speak of God who had been the provider during the wilderness and God who had been their light during the wilderness. Then there was a little altar in which incense came up constantly, constantly. And behind that altar was a curtain. And behind that curtain is where God dwelt with His people. But God dwelt with His people over the top of a gold 
covered box. Inside that box were the Ten Commandments. On top of that box, solid gold lid, solid gold. And it came up in the form of two angels whose wings would touch over the top of that lid and their faces downward cast. And God said he would dwell between between those angels hovering over that place, that box, and that lid would be called the mercy seat. Now what happened? One time a year, one time a year, the high priest and only the high priest would go behind that curtain. He would bring with him the blood of the goat that had been sacrificed for that day. Another one had been let go in the wilderness. But the goat of the sacrifice, some of the blood would be captured in a basin. And on that day, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go behind that veil and he would sprinkle the blood on the top of that seat, that mercy seat. And God would look down upon the broken law, the laws that his people had broken, and between holy God and the broken law was the blood of the sacrifice. And God said, for one year I will pass over. I will pass over. But it was repeated year after year after year. Now what was the name of that mercy seat? This very word here, propitiation. Propitiation. So now do you see what the Lord is saying here? Make sure you understand this. He is saying that God has set forward now. Listen, not back behind the veil, not in secret, but God has brought forward a place of sacrifice and blood has been shed for all the broken laws of all mankind But this mercy seat is not a box. This mercy seat is not an object. This mercy seat is His Son, the Lamb of God, who publicly was nailed to the cross. And He became that mercy seat, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He became the Lamb. He became the sacrifice. He became the substitute. He became the mercy seat. And then that darkness of that Friday afternoon, behind the curtain of darkness, God, His holy justice, was poured out on His Son, who is God Himself as well. And God had come from heaven and God himself became the mercy seat. God himself paid the debt. Taking the place of sinners and fulfilling 
with perfect righteousness. All was needed to save anyone who would look to him. Save not just for a day or a year, but for everlasting ages. Forever. This is what Jesus did. My friend, on Jesus, the wrath of God. What does it say? The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Romans 1.18 And God Himself came in His Son Jesus and paid by accepting His own divine wrath. Who can comprehend a God like this? Who can imagine such a thing? In a billion light years of existence, no one could ever think of such a thing. That God Himself, in His great love, would pay the debt. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So my friend... Do you think there's anything you or I could do to add to that? Do you think there's anything you could do to help God out? What did Jesus say on that cross? It is finished. And what was torn in two? The curtain. Thrown back. All can come to God. No need to fear. No wrath will come upon you if you come looking to Jesus. Because He's accepted the wrath. Your sin has been paid for. Come. Come in Jesus' name and I will declare you not guilty. What a God. It's absolutely astounding. Unqualified righteousness. That's the word I want you to see. There's no place for pride here. Where's pride? (laughs) Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? When God has become the lamb? When God has not just covered our sins. Listen, make sure you grasp this. They're not just pardoned. They're not just forgiven. They're taken away. Born away because they're paid in full in Christ. Where is pride? No place for pride. It's excluded. By what kind of law? Did the law do this? No. It's excluded because all we can do is have faith. The the principle of faith. We just rely on Jesus. We rely on Him. That's all. There's no place for pride. How can a drowning man boast of how well he clung to the lifeguard who saved him? Boy, did you see me hold on to that lifeguard? I hung on better than the other guy he saved. How stupid. How much more foolish to think that there's anything for us to be proud about. 
none whatsoever. There's no place for pride. There's no place for privilege. <laughs> Listen to this. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Verse 28. Verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? And guess what a lot of people were willing to say? Uh-huh. says, no, he's not the God of the Jews only. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles who are his image bearers as well? Yes, he is the God of the Gentiles. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith. That's Jewish people who have faith in Messiah. And He will justify the uncircumcised by the same faith. That is Gentiles who have faith in Messiah because He is the Savior of the world. Jews and Gentiles who cling to Christ Messiah are forgiven, declared not guilty. This righteousness, it's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unlimited, praise God. It's unqualified. No one has more of a reason for it. Church member or person who's a pagan, there's no place for boasting. It's all of God in Christ. It's all of grace. And guess who it's given to? <laughs> Here's the last word. The most unexpected. The most unexpected. Can you imagine the first Jewish Gentile church services? I've always thought about this. I'd, I'd, I'd love to just watch that. People are gathering in Jesus' name, and the Jews are there. Oh, our Messiah, our Messiah, wonderful, our Messiah. And the Gentiles show up. And the Jews go, you mean they're here? And the Gentiles come in and go, you mean they're here? <laughs> I think it's going to be that way when we get to heaven. We're going to see some folks in heaven. We're going to go, you mean they're here? <laughs> and guess what? They're going to look at some of us and say, you mean they're here? <laughs> How did you make it? <laughs> Through Jesus. It's how we all make it. There's one door that leads to the presence of God. And Jesus said, I am that door. There's not many ways that lead to heaven. There's one way. Jesus said, I am that one way. The only way. He's the only way, but He is the open door to all who will come to Him. Regardless of who they are or what they've done, if they come to God through Christ, not guilty. Why? Because the debt's been paid. It's unexpected. That's the reason some people, listen carefully, religious people never receive it. They're like this man Jesus talked about. Luke 18, verse 9. I'll read it and we finish. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the top of the religious elite, and the other a tax collector, a Benedict Arnold to his people, hated The Pharisee, standing by himself, of course he's standing by himself, where words Pharisee means a separated one. He's standing by himself, and he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes that all I get. Notice that? I, 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 I. The reality, he's praying to himself. He's not praying to God. But the tax collector, where's he standing? Far off. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat, he's beating upon his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me. Literally, the sinner. You know what the word merciful is there? God, be propitiated. To me, a sinner. What's he saying? On the basis of that blood. Be satisfied, O God. Let this sacrifice take my place. O God, be merciful. Be propitiated. Be mercy seated to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house... Justify rather than the other. Who? The religious Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man who had, yes, wasted his life pleaded with God on the basis of the sacrifice for God to be propitiated, satisfied with the sacrifice being made. And God said through Jesus, this man went home justified. Now, friend, listen carefully to me. In just a few minutes, you're going to go out this door and you're going to go home How are you going home today? I beg that there will be none that will go home self-righteously deceived. You've come to church another time. You've endured another one of Sam's sermon. That got me some points with God. And you go home Trusting in yourself. And you're deceived. 
and your loss. How are you going home today? But my friend, if your heart's desire, if your only hope, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner, on the basis of Jesus. Friend, you're not guilty. Go in peace. I'm telling you today, I don't care what you've done. And I don't care what's been done to you. And I don't care what lies the devil has told you, the world's told you, and what you've told yourself. And it may be not even lie, it may be the truth. But here's the greater truth. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And all who call upon Him to take their place, they are not guilty. And you can leave this place not guilty today. Not another day. Not another moment. Not ever again to be guilty. If you look to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Lord, let the applause go to you. Of course, our applause, our hands, we clap and praise you for such a salvation. Oh God, be merciful to us in Jesus. And we thank you that you are. Lord, I pray that for those who sense the need of that cleansing and that power, Lord, Help us not to tinker with our souls. Help us not to try to manufacture some self-righteousness. May we look to Christ. May people who've been saved keep looking to Christ. May people who've gone astray look to Christ. May doubters look to Christ. And Lord, those who believe there's no hope, may they hear this word of hope, this word of the gospel. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to Christ. Oh Lord, may you open eyes. May people look to Jesus and see in Jesus the smiling face of a saving King. And Lord, we worship you and give you praise. And we sing this praise to you as we leave. In your name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.